Uh, it's been a break. It's been a little while, and so we wonder, you know, are people going to make their way back? You did. That's great. We all have uh, returned, and I'm so glad for that. We pulled out all the stops to do what we intend to do, and amen. We want to bring together men and God's Word and the Bible, and we want to make that as easy as possible to make that connection between you as a man and God's Word, which is spoken to you and to women to people of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. We welcome you every age. We welcome you. We're glad that we're all here. And in order to get men to connect with the Bible, sometimes you have to do extra stuff, right? Like have bacon. You know, bacon, men men will come for bacon. You can do bacon. And in addition to bacon, um, I thought of another thing. All right, Pete, this is your time now. You do your deal. All right, a ball. You know, we have bacon We have basketball here. Now, don't think for a minute that I mean to just leapfrog college football season. I do not. I love college football. But the basketball actually fits my purpose for this morning to get us to the Bible. Uh, You all know this song, right? You know this image. You know, some of you, uh, I've happened to hear it vividly for the last two years, um, having a team in the hunt in the finals of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. But but it is one of the greatest moments in your sporting life and perhaps most famous song in all of sport. Um, The ball is tipped, there you are. You're running for your life, you're a shooting star. In all those years, no one knows just how hard you've worked, but now it shows in one shining moment you reach for the sky, and one shining moment you knew you were alive. The ball is tipped, and there you are. You put yourself right in it. Yeah. And that was Luther um, Luther Vandross, by the way. That was not Teddy Pendergrass. It was not Jennifer Hudson version. That wasn't even close to Luther Vandross. But anyway, I would like, that's the version I like the best. And, you know, and there you are. You put yourself right into the midst of that, and you live that tournament. You're being right there. And that gets our attention. Now, what does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? You may ask. All right, I'll ask you a question. Has that always been the theme song for the NCAA men's basketball tournament? And the answer is no. Before, and... um, We don't have his version for too terribly long, but, uh, uh, oh gosh, I just flipped it here. Oh, David Barrett, uh, who was the singer-songwriter that wrote that song, and for the first many years uh, when that song was used, it was his version. And then it went to Teddy Pendergrass, then it went to Luther Vandross, then it went to Jennifer Hudson, then it went back to Luther Vandross. But uh, before that, there was an NCAA basketball tournament, and it was a different song, and we're going to try to hit it. Right now. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Kenny Loggins. Uh, This is it. This is it. I don't remember any of the words of that song except this is it. This is it. This is it. That is your introduction to the book of Hebrews. And specifically to Hebrews 1. Verses 1 through 3. This is it. We are not going to get any further word from God. This is it. And we are not going to get any better, greater, superior subject of that written word of God 
than the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is it. It does not get any better than this. It cannot get any better than this. This is it. So you, can, uh, you may not remember much from today, but if you remember this is it, you've got the title of the book of Hebrews, and you've got the gist of the introduction to the book of Hebrews that is provided for us in verses 1 through 3. I, I would, I'm tempted to stop and pray again, but Jerry Roberts already prayed, and the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective, so if I pray, it wouldn't do any good, but he's already prayed, so we're good to go. All right, here's how I want to introduce us to Hebrews and to this introductory section of Hebrews this morning in two steps. I want us to look first at five questions of background, because I guess this is the most logical place to cover. Yeah, who wrote this letter to the Hebrews? Is it, in fact, a letter... Uh, why was it written, to whom was it written, was it really written to the Hebrews, how do we know that, and what Hebrews, all of those kind of questions we need to take care of, and so we're going to do that, so five questions of background, and then again, this is a men's Bible study, so I need to keep it really simple for this guy mostly, so all you got to remember is three words, then that will sum up the message of verses one through three, not three verses, I mean you think, well come on, we can handle three verses, I believe that. I think you can. But I'm only going to give you three words. Each word will typify one of those verses, and you'll have it down. So five questions of background, three words um, of introduction here. Uh, all right, so the five questions of background begin with, number one, who wrote it? Who wrote this epistle to the Hebrews? We don't know. Notice in those first three verses that it doesn't say, I, Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, together with Timothy and Silvanus, writing to you Christians in Jerusalem. It, it doesn't say that. That would be helpful. That would, well, I wouldn't spend very long at all on the introduction if we had all of that right there in the text, but it doesn't. And that's a problem, especially for those who have said that this is a letter of Paul. In fact, when it made it into the canon of the New Testament and, and lost all dispute within churches all over the empire, whether it was part of the word of God or not, it was with the assumption that it was written by Paul. And it was because of that that therefore it's written by an apostle, therefore it should be included in the canon. But the church in Rome was really pretty clear it wasn't written by Paul, and that was one of the last holdouts of resistance. In fact, the entire Western church was reluctant to accept it as a Pauline epistle, whereas it was the Eastern church, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, the Eastern side of the empire, that was much clearer that this is Paul. Well, if it, were, if it were not Paul, who could it be? And why not Paul? Well, the reason it's not Paul is because it doesn't say it's from Paul. And every other, every 13, all 13 letters that are attributed to Paul say, I, Paul, am writing this to you. This one does not. That's unusual right in there by itself. Now, some of those Eastern authors that said it was written by Paul said, well, Paul did it, but Paul knew that his credentials with the Hebrews were a little suspect. They viewed him as the apostle of the Gentiles. They thought he was a little bit radical, and so he didn't think it would help his cause to put his name in there. And he turned it over to one of his disciples, one of his followers, uh, to write it for him. So that the Greek is very different than the other letters of Paul. It's very polished Greek, uh, a very different form of rhetorical argumentation that goes through the book. So... All through the history, people have said, this, this doesn't sound like Paul. This isn't Paul. Especially in the time of the Reformation, Luther was very clear it wasn't Paul. Calvin was dogmatic. This is not Paul. And they had different views as to who it might be, but it's not 
Paul for those two reasons. Well, if it's not Paul, why did they say it was Paul? And Origen, one of those early Eastern fathers that said it was written by Paul, uh, said, well, it, it was written by his associate, one of his associates, probably Luke, who also wrote Acts and was closely connected with Paul. Luke probably also wrote Hebrews, but he was listening to Paul. He was, it was Pauline through and through. I thought that this morning it might help if we could just ask Paul and just settle it kind of once and for all. So I know not everybody can do this, but I got a special agreement that he'd come back. So, Paul, I just wanted to know, did you write a Hebrews? Could you just tell us once and for all? Well, David, I'd like to tell you that, uh, but I don't really know that it matters. Let me just tell you this. I agree with everything in the book of Hebrews. Everything, yeah, but still. I mean, yeah, but did you write it? Can you not set this straight and just settle the argument once and for all? David, I'll just tell you again, I agree with everything in the book of Hebrews. Well, but did you write it? I want to know, did you write it? David, I don't mean any disrespect here, but I, let me just tell you again, I agree with everything that is written in the book of Hebrews. My friend wrote it. Person I know well, he accurately captured every bit of my theology. He has his own style, of course, but I agree with everything in there. Is that good enough for you? Is that good enough for you? Now, a lot of you can say, yeah, who cares? Who cares who wrote it? Why would you spend time wasting our time early in the morning on who wrote the book of Hebrews if it doesn't say? Well, because there's a lot at stake on who wrote the book of Hebrews. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Uh, some years ago, and even still today, but it was especially a big deal some years ago in a former denomination that I was part of, and it wasn't the PCA. This was, goes way back. There was a move to add to the canon of Scripture, to the Christian canon, the, the books, the authoritative books. There was a move to add to that canon. And perhaps the chief candidate for being added to the canon to guide the church today, just as there was a book of confessions, instead of the Westminster Confession alone, we'll have a book of confessions, we'll add some modern confessions. Don't worry that they contradict the Westminster Confession. We're just going to add them so that whatever is your particular faith, you can feel comfortable with it. So we're going to add a letter from, the, from a Birmingham jail to the canon of Scripture. Now, I don't know when the last time you read Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, it is a fabulous, fabulous piece of writing. And it's a prison epistle, so that seems to fit well with Paul. I mean, it's, it's great. I agree with so much of what's in the letter from Birmingham jail. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say it's inspiring. But there is a world of difference, and we better understand it, between inspiring and inspired. The Word of God claims that it is inspired. It is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, that is all canonical books, all the writings that the church accepts as authoritative over her life and practice, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is inspired. That means it is God's word. It's not the word of Paul. 
It's not the word of Peter, whether through Peter himself or through his spokesperson Mark in the gospel or Luke, as Paul's spokesperson. It's not their word. It is the word of God. And we know it to be such primarily by this one characteristic of all 27 books in the New Testament. They are apostolic. And what I'm saying today is that apostolic doesn't simply mean written by an apostle, but also means written within the circle of an apostle, with the imprimatur of an, of an apostle. That also can be apostolic. So from the very earliest, the earliest Christians spoke of the four gospels of our Lord Jesus, and the four apostolic gospels. They knew perfectly well. There's never been any dispute about it's Mark's gospel. Mark was not one of the 12 apostles. But it was understood that he was Peter's spokesman, as Eusebius makes clear in his ecclesiastical history, the very first ecclesiastical history that we have. Likewise, Luke was not an apostle. He was probably even Gentile. But he wrote with Paul as one looking over his shoulder, giving it the imprimatur, saying that this is right. And he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. In fact, he wrote more of our New Testament than any of the apostles did. So uh, that's, that's pretty significant. Big difference between inspiring and inspired. When we turn just a minute to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we are not just looking at an ancient document that reflects ancient wisdom and encourage us in our time of need. We are turning to the very word of God. And when we turn to the word of God, we bow low before it and we listen. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So you've got just a few minutes before we get back to Hebrews chapter 1 to check your attitude, to check your posture internally, and to know whether that reflects where I'm coming from. Lord, you speak whatever you say, I believe. Whatever you say, I will do. I am your servant. Speak, because I am listening. So who wrote Hebrews? Origen perhaps summed it up best. He thought Paul was behind it, but he wasn't sure who actually wrote it. He knew it wasn't Paul because the Greek was different, and uh, it didn't say Paul, so he knew it was different. And he said, as to the question of who actually wrote down the words, only God knows. And I believe that too. But I do know this, that Paul was behind it, that it is apostolic, and therefore it is authoritative, and it's God's word for me today and for you today as well. That's important to get out of the way. It's also important to ask four other questions, but we won't spend as long on those. The second question, not besides who wrote it, is to whom was it written? And we're given a clue on that uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. So we're going to be coming to that in just a second. Let's go ahead and just look at that now. and We'll see uh, what is the clue. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, our fathers. Whoever were the fathers of the recipients of this letter were also the fathers of the author of this letter. It could be fathers in the faith, broadly conceived, and perhaps including Gentiles within it. It's certainly relevant to Gentiles. The author seems to here be saying something of, this is particularly Jewish and important for the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we need to understand our fathers got God's word this way. We now have God's word in another way. And it does not compete with what went before. It doesn't annul what went before except where it's explicitly stated to annul it. Or really not annul it, but abrogate it. 
go farther. It's a progressive revelation. So, and that's why the title of this book, from the very earliest record we have, the very earliest Greek manuscript we have of the book of Hebrews, calls it the book of Hebrews. It's written particularly for Christians of Jewish ethnicity. Now, they may very well have been Hellenistic in terms of their upbringing. They spoke Greek. They used the Septuagint rather than they spoke Aramaic or even Hebrew, and they grew up in Palestine, Jerusalem. That's trickier. We'll get to that in a minute. But they were probably Jewish believers, and that'll be significant here in, in just a, a few minutes. The other uh, part of that in uh, chapter 13, verse 24, uh, we'll mention quickly as we uh, blitz on here. Sorry for needing to turn there. Very in the end of the letter, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So there's a clue as to whom this was written. It was written to some group that it made sense to say those from Italy greet you. The problem is that we don't know what, whether those from Italy uh, are those to whom the, 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 he is in Italy, and therefore he says, hey, these people around here, I'm writing back to Palestine, and I just want you to know, those from Italy send you greetings. Or whether he was over here in Palestine writing this, or in Alexandria, or some other destination in the east, and he's writing back to Rome, and he says, hey, there are some people here scattered out of Rome, like Priscilla and Aquila, or perhaps others. They're over here, and they want to greet you back in Rome. And it could go either way, and there are commentators that fight it back and forth which way it is. I'm not sure it makes a ton of difference, because in Rome there was a sizable Jewish population from before the Christian era. And in fact, Priscilla and Aquila meet up with Paul in Acts chapter 18 because they had been kicked out of Rome in the fifth decade of the first century by edict of the, of the emperor who drove all the Jews out. There was a huge Jewish community. And it wasn't until they were enabled to come back that there was, again, significant Jewish community in Acts chapter 28 when Paul finally gets to Rome under house arrest. There's a bunch of uh, Jewish leaders who come and meet with him and speak with him. So there's a significant Jewish population in Rome. It's plausible that he could have been over here in the east somewhere riding back to Rome and still it would be to the Hebrews primarily. But it's also possible that he is writing whoever he is. And we think he rather than she, I mean it was... Adolf von Harnack thought it was Priscilla that may have written this because she seemed to be the sharper bulb in the dual light stand of Priscilla and Aquila and helped Apollos understand the word of God more thoroughly, more accurately. Um, could have been. I mean, that's, that's possible. There are other commentators that have picked up on the Priscilla thing too. But there's a masculine pronoun that's used in chapter 11 of the author, and so that makes that less likely that it was written by Priscilla. But whatever. So that whoever this man was who's writing this letter, he is writing it with a connection with Italy and a connection with Hebrews. And whether that's coming from Palestine to Rome or Rome to Palestine, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I'm going to go with to, uh, from Rome to Palestine and assume that the recipients of this particular letter, and we can call it a letter, he says, I write to you, but it doesn't have a lot of the characteristics of a letter, but this particular letter um, is coming back to an environment very much like the environment that produced Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And we see his fabulous speech. A lot of the elements of that speech are echoed in the book of Hebrews. So there were people like Hebrews in visions back in Palestine, as there were also in Rome, 
And so Paul, or Paul, not Paul, but whoever this author is within the Pauline apostolic circle is writing back to these Hebrews to say, hey, this is it. Don't revert. I know it would be easier to revert. Don't. Why would it have been easier to revert? What would have been the temptation there? Well, uh, we'll answer that in two more questions. Third question is when. Again, we don't know for sure, but we can say it was clearly written in the first century without even having to say because it's apostolic and all the apostles are dead by the end of the first century, so it has to be in the first century. Well, that, that's probably, that is true, but we know that Clement of Rome uh, wrote a letter in uh, around 95, 96 of the Christian era, and he quotes extensively from Hebrews. So he, Hebrews is known to him, valued by him. He treats it as scripture, and he writes in 96 with full awareness of it. So it needed to be in the first century and before 96. Then the pivotal date becomes A.D. 70, when Rome uh, went into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. There is no more temple sacrifice after A.D. 70 till this present day. And so that is a huge change to Judaism. And the book of Hebrews doesn't mention it. He said it's an argument from silence, and it is, but it fits his argument so well that if the temple um, sacrifices had all been abolished, he should have said it because he's going to say they were temporary, they couldn't uh, effectively take care of sin and all that, and so he would have mentioned it. So I'm going to suggest a date before A.D. 70, perhaps before the death of Paul, which could be between 64 and 68, and that's when this letter to the Hebrews is being written. Now, why? Why write to them? What is the temptation to revert? Well, the temptation to revert is that they're under persecution. That comes up several times in the letter. They've suffered the confiscation of their goods. They have been imprisoned. They've had to visit people in prison. It's getting hard to be a Christian. If we're thinking of this um, Palestinian milieu, it would be even harder. Many of them have lost their jobs. They've been estranged from their families, if not actually put out of their families because of their conversion to Christ. They are not viewed with great honor, and it, it's a hard time to be a Christian in the first century in Palestine. And so it's tempting to kind of go back. Can't we just maintain the traditions of our forefathers? Is, is that really that big a deal? I have friends that still ask that today. People from Roman Catholic background are considering the gospel of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they're thinking about, I want to convert to that, and I want to become evangelical, characterized by this gospel of grace, faith, Christ, according to Scripture, to the glory of God alone. But I can't do that. My grandmother would die early if I did that. She's Irish Catholic, she can, she's Italian Catholic, she's Polish Catholic, she's Dominican Catholic, she's Brazilian Catholic, she is, we can fill in the blank of whatever cultural context that is, but you've got to know how powerful that is. It, it's like you saying, I'm going to become a, and you can fill in the blank, for me it would be, I, I'm going to become an Alabama fan in college football. My mother would drop dead today. I mean, she would go, what on earth? What did we raise here? What kind of a son is this? She would not know what to do with that. And we're joking about it, but some of you know personally and firsthand what that's like, to have even your very family reject you because of your commitment that you made for Christ. I mean, Jesus said a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And some of you know what that shame is. 
Some of you being in a Presbyterian building even, that's an abomination to your Baptist mother or your fill in the blank. Well, that's what was going on here. It was tough for them to be because of that rejection, because of the, couldn't we just take it back? Couldn't we just kind of do both? Couldn't we just go to the temple cult and do all of that, but still hold on to Jesus? It's, we're in the sacrifices, but, but we're not really paying too much attention to them. We're mostly paying attention to Jesus. Can't we do that? And this author will say, no. You do that? You go back? It's as though you were crucifying the Son of God all over again. You don't want to do that. Wow, that's tough. The temptation is strong. And the temptation is also strong because all of us love religion. You think, no, we don't. We hate religion. We don't want to go, yeah, we kind of do. We want to think that we're contributing something to our salvation. So we're at least going through the, I am regular in my worship. I'm regular in my devotions. I pray many times. I fast. I give. We want to add all of that religiosity to our resume in the hopes that maybe that'll get me into heaven better. And the doctrine of, no, the only way you're going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. No, I don't believe in a free lunch. I'm going to pay my own way. I mean, you pay your own way, you go to hell. You will not make it. Lord, don't wash my feet only if I've got to have my feet washed. Wash my whole body or whatever. Peter, you're, the feet are enough. But at first, Peter said, don't wash my feet. I'll wash my own feet. You don't need to wash my feet. You're my master and Lord. You can't wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me, Peter. Well, then wash my whole body. These Hebrews were struggling. Gosh, I don't know if I can let you do that, Jesus. He's got to do it. If he doesn't wash us, we don't make it. So there is definitely social stigma to be overcome, to stay in there, and there is religious impulse to overcome and to say, I am not going to buy all of that human religiosity, all that man-made religiosity. You say, whoa, 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 but wait, <laughs> that's not man-made religiosity. That's all Old Testament. You're saying give all of that up? Yes, not because there was anything wrong with that older covenant. It was just something wrong with the people. They could not keep that Old Testament covenant. And we'll see that more when we get to Hebrews chapter 8, that that was the problem. God fought, found fault not with his law, not with his covenant. He found fault with the people. And he was preparing a way through shadowy fore, um, foreshadowing to show us before the substance came, which is Christ. So that's the, the why of what he did. Uh, Two places, a quick one, chapter 4, verse 14, since we have such a great high priest who's gone into the heavens, uh, we, we follow him, we rest in him. But let me read the other one here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I mean chapter 10, verse 19. It mentions verse 19 and verse 23 on the handout or on the slide, but let me just give you uh, the whole sentence in Greek. There's one Greek sentence that comprises Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and this was... Um, the sentence that I preached on when I was first ordained a hundred years ago. I, I didn't know Paul, but I knew friends of his. No, I'm not that old. But anyway, um, this was the, the, the text I was given for my ordination. And at that time, the ordination would, could be pretty tough. In fact, I had to write an exegetical paper. That means a scholarly discourse using not just Greek because they gave you a New Testament. No, they gave me, and this was on purpose. They said later, we gave you a passage that you would have to use your Greek and your Hebrew because you're from Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church, and we're not sure about those guys. They're a little loosey-goosey. And so we want to know that you're really dyed in the wool here, so you got to do that exegetical paper on the first 18 verses, and then you can preach on the next verses. 
And so I was doing that, and, and I'm getting ready to be ordained. And one of the questions that we've heard before um, that is often asked, it's certainly in older exams. I was not asked this question, I'm glad, because my answer might have gotten me disbarred if I'd used the answer in this story. And I have this funny feeling I may have told you all this story before. You know, the deja vu thing starts coming. And I've been thinking about it a lot. I think I did. No, I'm not sure I did. So if I did, would you please tell me? Don't say, well, don't tell him. It'll make. If I did, um, this will reinforce it. Uh, This ordination day, the question that was so awkward was Paul's theology in Romans chapter 9 about, you know, and chapter 10, I'd rather be cut off, accursed, for the sake of my people Israel. And so the question would come from typically a very old presbyter in the back with a stern look on his face. Young man. Are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? And a young man before me is reputed to have said, and this guy had been giving him grief all day long, every part of the exam, really pushing him. He felt like an idiot. Whenever that guy raised his hand, he went, oh, boy. And it was just tough. And he said, sir, I'm not sure I'm at the place in my spiritual growth where I am willing to be damned for the glory of God. But I believe today I'm willing for you to be damned for the glory of God. (laughs) Uh, That answer will get you in big trouble. You don't want to go there. So, uh. All right, so here I'm at the ordination. I'm preaching from uh, these verses. Listen to this one. It's one sentence uh, in the Greek. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us... Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That one Greek sentence does a wonderful job of summing up this book of Hebrews. Why did this writer pen this book? He wanted to lay out the foundations of our salvation since we have confidence subjectively to enter into the holy place Because of a great high priest, our Lord Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, who offered a final sacrifice, since that doctrine is true, therefore, hear my word of exhortation. And he exhorts them with these hortatory subjunctives. It's not quite commands, but it's, but let us, let us, let us. When I was doing the sermon, I I got up and said, you know, it's very appropriate. I'm a young man. This is an ordination sermon. I'm not going to teach you guys anything. You've been ministers and ruling elders much longer than I have. And I know that the The Bible says, even here in Hebrews, that meat is for the mature. And therefore, it's appropriate that I would turn to the salad section of Scripture. And you'll get it in a minute. Let us, let us, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us. So all that lettuce is uh, appropriate for me to hit the salad section, not the meat for the mature. Later, you're going to have an opportunity in your groups or following up on these questions to look at that one sentence summary of the whole book and to pick an application perhaps which one of those senses since this since that hits you the most or which one of those let us which one of those exhortations hits you the most that's the book of Hebrews well how then is it written that's why it's written 
Don't turn back. This is it. This is the final revelation of God, the final word of God. He spoke in his son, who is the living word of God, and this is it. This is a once for all, that word is significant in Hebrews, once for all sacrifice for sin. So that's why, how? Uh, Quickly, uh, this is it, so three parts to this letter. This is it, so listen. In chapters 1 through 4, the emphasis on Christ's person. Who is this Christ? Listen to him. This is it. No one else is coming. This is the final prophetic word. This is the final priest. This is the final king. This is it, so believe. Put your trust in him. Don't shrink back, but believe on him. Trust in him. The just shall live by faith. That Old Testament verse from Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Hebrews as it also is in Romans, very key to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, and also Galatians, very key to Galatians. That's another hint that this is very Pauline. He's already used that verse twice. It shows up also in Hebrews, so believe. And then finally, in chapters 11 through 13, so endure persevere, hang in there, do not give up, don't shrink back. Since we have, and we, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we, we push on toward him. Uh, any questions? Okay, good. Let's move on to the second part because we're going to be about out of time. Three words of introduction. I don't want to make this too difficult. Everybody's going to pass this exam. What's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 about? Past, verse 1. Last, verse 2. Unsurpassed, verse 3. Past, last, as in last days. And unsurpassed, as in supreme, in verse 3. Let me just read those verses, and you see if you find those three words. If you don't, I'm in deep trouble. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You get the past idea. NIV is explicit in the past, but it's not explicit in the ESV, but the concept is there. In the past, long ago... God spoke in many ways at many times to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, and we'll go on to that next time. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Past, last, unsurpassed. Past, you can uh, look at it yourself. You can, uh, uh, we're backed up still, I think, here at this one. To past, God spoke, and it's, that's the sentence, God spoke. And then look at all the modifiers. God spoke long ago. He spoke at many times. He spoke in many ways. He spoke to our fathers. He spoke by the prophets. All of that clarifying God spoke. So let there be no mistake 
that the author of this book believes that the Old Testament is inspired by God, just as Paul did, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's inspired by God. God spoke through the prophets. Don't think, don't interpret the Sermon on the Mount this way. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, when Jesus uses that formula in Matthew 5, he does not at all mean you've heard in the Old Testament that this is the way it is, but I say, I have a new idea. Old Testament, that's the God of wrath. We're leaving that behind. New Testament, the God of love, that's where we're going. That is not Jesus. No, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that not one crossing of the T or dotting of the I will occur before all is fulfilled. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. That is a very Hebrews kind of statement from our Lord Jesus. So, the Old Testament is inspired. In the past, it was all good. It's all good. But verse 2, but now, so back then, this way, now it's different. Spoke to our fathers, spoke to us. And we can still say that because this is it. This is the final revelation. This revelation speaks to us in the 21st century today. It's still a word to us. It's not to our fathers and to others. No, this is a word to us. And it's not by the prophets who weren't bad. They were completely inspired by God. This is by the greatest of all prophets called to be such because he's God's son. And because he's God's son, he's greater than all of them. So that's the contrast. And we need to heed that contrast. This is it. Are you listening? Well, shall I listen to this son? Yes, because he is unsurpassed. Sevenfold excellency of the Son of God described in these, um, in these verses. He is heir of all things, has always been from the beginning. From eternity past, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Jesus understood as the eternal logos, not the human part of Jesus, or the human Jesus, that's wrong language, the human Jesus. Jesus is two natures, human and divine, in one person. And God is one nature in three persons. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been there, and always from the beginning, he's been the heir. He didn't become the heir because he did something. He has always been the heir of all things. All things point to him. As we read in the great doxology in Romans chapter 11, all comes to him, it all comes from him, as well as we see that he is the agent of creation. That this son, through whom God has spoken his final word, is the heir of all things, and through him he created the world. The entire trinity was involved in the creation. The spirit was brooding on the surface of the waters. The father spoke, and it came into being. And actually, the father spoke the word. It's through Jesus also, as John 1 makes clear, and Colossians 1 makes clear. It is Jesus who was God's agent in creation. He's intimately involved in it. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. That's John 1. Um, verse 11 and 12. Heir of all things, agent of creation, radiance of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that Moses had to turn his face from. His face was shining when he came down from the mountain because of the brightness of the glory of God, the glory that settled on the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings, the glory that came to the temple, and the glory also, sadly, that departed when Israel was so unfaithful. This glory of God is represented in Jesus. In Jesus, no one's ever seen God. 
But we know from John chapter 1, verse 14, again, that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that verse says. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God and the grace and truth of Jesus. And Jesus intends for his followers, who are Christ ones, also to demonstrate grace and truth. Well, that's his great glory. Fourth, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Exact imprint. There is no difference between the Son of God and the Father. In terms of divine nature, there is no inferiority of the Son to the Father. Hebrews writer wants to make that explicitly clear. He is the exact representation. The Greek word is character. We get character from it. It's as though it's talking about a die. Uh, and then you're impressing an image on a stamp, perhaps, whether in wax or on paper with ink, and it's an exact representation. It's a perfect image. It's the best Xerox that's ever been made. I know you shouldn't say, you should say photocopy, but uh, it's kind of like a Kleenex, or if it, we always we say, it's a Xerox. Well, it's not, it's photocopy. But it's a perfect photocopy. Jesus, have you seen Jesus? You have seen the Father, which Jesus himself said in, in John chapter 14. Additionally, he is the upholder of the universe. Jesus didn't just speak once and then say, see ya, like a deist would tell you that the uh, universe came about. He didn't wind up the clock and then leave it there to run on its own until it runs down and you'll show up again to have judgment. No, no, no. Jesus is that by which the universe holds together and consists. Again, listen to this language in Colossians chapter 1 and see if it doesn't sound very much like Hebrews. And this was clearly written by Paul. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah, where's Tim now? Tim Russell, I heard so much about Tim Russell all the time before I got, before he came back here, but he was here before I was here. And Tim was famous, apparently, for saying in sermons at odd times, and it was it especially stood out when Sandy was here because Presbyterians don't talk during the sermon or whatever, but Tim would. And Tim would say at the highlight of the sermon, and Mike Warner probably would, but he, there you go. <laughs> That's the Jesus I know. In Hebrews chapter 1, 2b and 3. Excellent. Sevenfold excellency of Jesus. Six is he is a great high priest. Having once offered purification for sins, he sat down. Nothing more to be done to secure your salvation than what Jesus has done. You'll hear a lot more about that in the book of Hebrews. He is the great final high priest who is both the one offering the sacrifice and the very sacrifice itself. It's not by the blood of bulls and goats that we have been purified from our sin. It's by the blood of a precious lamb of God, God's own son. What more can he do than he has already done? Nothing. This is it. And then seventh, excellency, he is the reigning Lord. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A way of 
speaking about God without using the name of God. It's a way of saying that the majesty on high. It is God the Father. God the Son has now, having finished the work that he was given to do, has sat down at the right hand where he reigns and rules forever and ever. He will come again, and we can take comfort in that. Well, now you've been introduced to the book of Hebrews. By way of five questions of background, by way of three words of introduction, again, to the feeble-minded among you, I include myself, three words, all you've got to remember from Hebrews 1, 1, 3. Past, last, and unsurpassed. And if you can only remember one, remember unsurpassed. Jesus is it. He is the last and greatest prophet, that prophet greater than Moses that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. He is that last and greatest sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He is the last and greatest written word of God, giving us the New Testament revelation, for it was Jesus who prophesied in John 14, John 15, John 16, three promises in each one of those chapters that to you, the apostles, I will give remembrance of everything that I've said and you will be my witnesses. You'll write it down. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and you will write down a New Testament canon that will correspond to the Old Testament prophets. So we have the word of prophets and apostles and that's it. There is no more coming. There are many inspiring words coming but no more inspired words coming. This is it. So what? There are a number of applications that can be made. I've suggested some of them for you in the discussion questions, but let me say the one I think that is the most general application for all of us. This is it. This is God's final word to us. So listen. Listen. I close with... Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Well, I'll, I'll give you verse 1 too. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? Why are you trying to build a temple for me? Or I, I fill the heavens. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. This is it. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, we're not used to trembling. In fact, we think it's a bad thing if I were trembling with reverential awe. We know that Moses trembled when he saw a bush that had flames coming out of it, but it wasn't being consumed. And he trembled when he was on the mountain and heard the thunder, and the people of Israel trembled before that mountain, quaking with thunder and lightning flashes and earthquakes. Lord, produce in us that holy fear, that holy reverence that causes us to be very watchful lest we miss your word. Help us pay careful attention to it. And help us make sure that we're not just checking it out to think about whether we're willing to obey it or not. No, we who are your children are checking it out in order to know exactly what you want us to do today. 
And for those who are not yet your children, I've not made that kind of big commitment to you. I pray, Lord, that they would also, they would check it out, but they would recognize the one with whom they are dealing behind this word, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who thankfully is full of grace and truth. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Good pass, too, Pete. Yep.